Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today I am going to talk to two poets, Felicia Zamora and Marisol Baca, about poetry, the pandemic, and whether or not we are going to survive all of this and will language survive, will poetry survive? So stick around for our conversation. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. Felicia Zamora is author of six books of poetry, including I Always Carry My Bones, which is the winner of the 2020 Iowa Poetry Prize, forthcoming from the University of Iowa Press. Oh, that's this year in 2021. And another one from Tinderbox Editions, also coming up this year in 2021, Quotient. Uh, you are author of Body of Render. We talked about that book on a, on a, on a show before from Red Hen Press. Uh, Instrument of Gaps, uh, and in Open Marvel, and A Form and Gather. Oh, my God, how many books have you written? <laughs> but uh, one of the things on your website, Felicia, it says, poet, editor, writer, thing. What do you mean by thing? Yeah, I, I know that thing is a real controversial term, right? Especially when dealing with, and when you're thinking about, like, for me, being a woman of color and, and being objectified in, in whatever way, or it's a controversial term, but for me, my thingness and, and remembering that I am made of this, like the same cellular elements as mm. the, the dust of comets that go across the sky or, you know, the, the ragweed in the backyard, like that connects me in a really necessary way. And so I like to think of my thingness to tread more lightly in the world that I live. Well, that's taking that word and, and, and yeah, that's taking back that word in a sense, that word yeah. thing, you know, and empowering, making it a term of empowerment. <laughs> that's beautiful. I love it. I, I would be uh, honored to be considered a thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Like, I, I, I think for me it is. And, and I put it on there because of it's sort of a worldview for me you know, um, of how I, wa I want to be present in the world. Yeah. You know what I can't help but think of for some reason, and probably just because, you know, you were talking about us being starbus and us, stardust and us being the weeds in the backyard, us being connected to everything. I can't help but uh, think of that idea, which I guess is accepted as a fact among, you know, theoretical physicists that are the, every atom, every subparticle in our bodies renews entirely every seven years so that we are really not who we were in the past. You know, which kind of yeah. things us even more. Yeah, we're, we're like we're shedding ourselves. Wow. So and regrowing constantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're 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 uh, you know, and and also there's others that believe that. Uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, you, you've all heard of panpsychism, right? That everything is conscious, you know, absolutely everything. There's a lot of mm -hmm. neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists today that still firmly or that now firmly believe that, that everything is conscious. There's just different, different structures that we can't understand. Yeah. Yeah, the textures of consciousness are different. Marisol Boca, Marisol Baca is Fresno Poet Laureate, Poet Laureate. She is author of Tremor, a collection of poems from Three Mile Harbor Press, and her work has been published in I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, Narrative Northeast, uh, Riverlit, um, Shadowed, an anthology of women of writers, the Ascentos Reviews, and many others. And you are the current. Yeah, yeah, I, I said that. The current Poet Laureate of Fresno. My God, what is it like to be the Poet Laureate of Ooh. Fresno? <laughs> um, uh, it's been really enjoyable. I'm at the end of the two-year um, appointment for Poet Laureate, and it's just it's been really great to kind of have a, have a platform and to be able to, you know, represent Fresno, which is kind of a big thing. Um, Fresno, you know, just really doing a lot of cool stuff and with poetry especially, but it's been really neat to do that and to work on some projects and yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, hoping that this new, um, we just got some money coming through for, through, um, a composition for parks and arts. 
and hoping that finally we can um, start to join some of the other cities and have like an actual budget and real money going towards the arts and that would that would make a really huge difference so been interested in watching um, how all that stuff is unfolding wow. and being a spokesperson for things like that but yeah so you know I think there's yeah. there's two types of poet laureates when they're they're appointed and one is the old model which was usually you know filled by an uh, an older white white man and it was to receive laurels as a poet and to occasionally read uh, a poem that was, you know, culturally significant, but not too threatening. Uh, and then there's the, 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 the new activist poet laureate like you and like Emmy Perez of yes. Texas, the poet laureate of Texas. Man, she is kicking butt over here. And there's Juan Felipe Absolutely. Herrera, who, who preceded yeah. people like Philip Levine, who once told me that when I asked him what he's going to do, as a poet laureate, he says, the, the least amount it's possible. <laughs> so it, it, it seems like a, a staggering responsibility that you're taking very seriously. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's definitely hard. This is a time that's, I mean, uh, with the fires and with, you know, children being in cages, all of the things that are happening and to and feel an extreme amount of responsibility to speak about it. Um, there is an added pressure and, a, and an added anxiety that comes along with that, that I think this time just is, you know, it's asking for us to um, at least write about it and to talk about it and so that others feel a little bit more comfortable yeah. talking about it. It's not always something I mean, I'm very good at, but, but it's mm -hmm. definitely tested that. And, you know, and um, so doing that work has been, it's been fulfilling, um, yeah, as it comes to a close. Wow. And you're in Fresno. Fresno can be an incredibly um, uh, agitated and uh, anxiety-filled environment in general, let alone during a pandemic when you have, I'm sure, a lot of very strong QAnon, pro-Trumper people, you know, storming the streets without masks and, and waving flags. And then you have, you know, uh, impoverished people of color, Southeast Asians, uh, uh, Latinx people, uh, black people. Um, you know, living in really harsh environments. Yes, and the urban and the rural. I mean, and I'm out in the farmlands right now. I used to live in the center of the city, um, the very, very center of the city. And um, now it's it feels so strange to have lived through all of this stuff that's been going on politically and being in the farmland where you get, you know, just this huge amount of, um, uh, Trump supporters and flags and everything, yeah. and still, you know, so it's been, it's been pretty difficult, and to see that, you know, just up against um, just people that are suffering and suffering at the hands of, you know, right, of right. This Criminal. And and all this all this yeah. all this violence and hatred right now. One of the things that I'm grateful oh, for yeah. every day when I'm walking my baby to the park, she's almost two years old, and I put her in the stroller and we walk to the park every day, is I know I am never going to hear somebody yell derogatory terms out their windows or or throw stuff at me uh, because I don't belong. And uh, uh, El Paso is over eighty percent Mexican, you know, and. Uh, uh, and we're on the, you know, we're Twin Cities with Ciudad Juarez. And so if there are Trump supporters here, and there are, their enthusiasm is reduced to a bumper sticker or a sign on their front lawn. They're not. Right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what about you, uh, Felicia? Where where are you right now? And how is that uh, uh, holding up during this, this pandemic? <laughs> well, my partner and I actually moved across the country in June, um, to, to take new jobs. And so we're in Ohio now. We moved from Phoenix. And I, I, had, I had never been to Ohio before taking the job at University of Cincinnati. And, um, you know, it's, it's been eye-opening to sort of witness what's going on and the dynamics of... I am in a slightly more rural area just outside of the city of Cincinnati. And then the dynamics in the city are also you know, interesting, and I'm trying to pay attention to it, tons of Trump supporters around here, which was really sort of frightening to begin with. Oh, I bet. Um, I <laughs> like, of the reality of, you know, and, and Phoenix, Phoenix, by, of course, had, um, 
you know, lots of BIPOC individuals living, but, but there was also a very heavy handed redness going on that in, in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as if, you know, we, we were coming to Ohio to be like, Oh, we're surprised, you know, we weren't surprised right. in any way, shape or form, but, um, it did feel very heavy. It felt palpable, right? The, um, the, the Republican conservative feel, um, like, like you said, it has very much died down. I keep getting people asking me though, you know, <laughs> have you, have you, have you sighed after, after the inauguration? And, and the reality is, is no, I haven't. I haven't because it's four years of a filling balloon. Right. Like of a, I feel like a balloon that's just slowly beginning to let out air because, you know, like the work, Marisol, like the work that you're doing, which is so necessary and earth moving, but at the same time, it's exhausting and it can call from individuals. And that's why it's like this work, you know, activism work. And, and I would say poetry that leads towards activism, you know, it's a collective and we need, we need to be having that collective so we don't like completely shut down. So, so I keep saying, you know, I'm, I'm letting out air slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. <laughs> I, I have a weird question, but I think you guys would understand it. I think if I ask, when I ask this question to some people, I think it just doesn't make sense. But, you know, poets tend to think in terms of phenomenon connected to meaning. So if it's raining outside on the day of your wedding, you kind of think, what does this mean? And not just with rain, but, you know, we do that all along, even though we play with the idea. We're not locked into meanings, but... What is the pandemic saying to you? Yeah, so I think um, it's been, obviously, it's been really tough. It's really been really tough. It's been really lonely for me, particularly. I don't see, I'm very connected, very close to my sisters, and I don't see them at all, like 0%, except on the occasional Zoom call or, you know, um, texting each other, things like that. So it's been really hard for me. Um, I feel a lot more disengaged and and a lot a lot lonelier. However, I also feel like this has given me and you brought it up earlier. It was that I feel much more allowance to get really into and deep into what I'm thinking and what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And going on walks and and jogging a little bit has really helped with that. And looking for um, looking for these little moments of, I mean, I don't want to use the word magic, but these little moments that feel symbolic and important and help me to figure out what I'm trying to say in my mm-hmm. writing. And so the pandemic's really, it's changed the way that I, the way that I take time to do things. Mm-hmm. And um, it feels like everything, like it's, like the fabric is really stretching and moving and um, not always in, you know, it's it's easy to get really dark and really negative about it, especially me. <laughs> right. but, but if I keep up with things that make me feel good, um, like walking, for example, and doing the, these little, like, you know, I look for places out in the farmland that are kind of undiscovered and that feel really uh, interesting and kind of bewitching and, and cool and magical and that helps me to like kind of enter into, I don't know, a, a little bit more of meditation. Mm-hmm. And so that's been really, that's been really helpful. But I mean, there was just a really, a really hard time with the fires that were happening um, that I just oh, felt yeah. right. completely helpless. Like it, like someone had just put, you know, something over my mouth and I just really had no ability to speak. And so I did a lot of writing, but um, it was really hard, you know. So my, wow. my a huge um, most of my I don't say a huge chunk, but most of my family now actually lives in Colorado, and you know, simultaneously, why California was having the fires, Colorado was having the fires, and there was just this 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 deep fear inside of me of like. What does that mean? I I lived in Colorado for 12 years, and um, I really resonate with what you're saying about how the movement of of the naturalness around us, the landscape, Mm -hmm. what the rest of the earth is doing, sometimes upheaves us. And 
you know, again, and this is this layering, right? Like this, A, we exist, B, we're in a pandemic, C, we're in racial injustice left and right. I mean, mm-hmm. a little nine-year-old being handcuffed, you know, what right. white little girl would be handcuffed and pepper sprayed in the face? It wouldn't mm-hmm. be, you know, all of these brokenness. And, th- and then you have like the, the nationalness of, of fire and hurricanes and, and all of the earth, earth's taking elements on top of it. I mean, we were, we're in it. Right. Uh, and, 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 and it's the interesting thing is all these things that you mentioned, every time you mention one of them, we get an image and that image we might've gotten from our devices or we got it from television, but, you know, we see cities burning and we see people in hospitals dying, you know, we see, you know, we see these, these images that keep us even more inside. You were talking earlier about the anxiety of leaving. I remember shortly after the lockdown began, when the disease was really spreading, the virus was spreading all over and people were were starting to die in huge numbers. I was afraid to go to Albertsons to buy produce and to buy fruit. Yeah. Uh, and But I would have to brave it once a week. And every time right. I would do it, I was... I felt not only anxiety, but I imagined as I was walking out of the store, my throat hurting a little bit as if, as if I were catching something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's been so many times when I felt my throat, like just for a little bit, my throat tighten up and, Oh no, I'm going to, you know, I'm getting sick and it goes away right away. But, and I don't know if it's that's anxiety or what, but I, I have felt that for sure. Yeah. And our, our bodies are reacting to the virus and, you know, everything around us in ways that I don't think we're going to understand for a while. Right, right. Um, at, least, at least I know that I'm not. Um, I, I wanted to go back to what Marisol had said about just looking for moments of magic because I, I, I love that. <laughs> I love that <laughs> idea so much. I, I actually just finished teaching um, Ross Gay's book, The Book of Delight, to my uh, to my class this semester, and it was a book for me that, in reading it, I felt like, okay, this has to I have to teach this because in this time we need this so much, and you know it really has me thinking. This book and you know Roski's view of there's a chapter or there's an essay in here where he's talking about how he had written all these written all these delights down. And, and he, he goes through and he actually throws the pages away of the delights that he was kind of hoarding because he wanted to trust that delights are abundant, <laughs> that delights are with us every moment of the day. Mm-hmm. This is that magic I think you're talking about, Marisol, right? Like that we have to trust that even though so much is happening around us, that it's just hurting us and making us lonely and pulling us apart and ripping us at the seams, there there are these delights everywhere. We just, we have to be able to acknowledge them as well. And so, so I really see, I feel like the pandemic is making me search for limitlessness and possibility in a way that I, I knew I was searching for it before, but it's become very large in my existence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if I even know how to, fully imagine it and to see it, but I'm, I'm trying to be open because I feel so physically contained. I feel, um, you know, so you're saying your family, my family is in Colorado. I, I don't, I talk to them, you know, almost every other day, at least my sister talks to my brother and my mom, but I'm lonely as hell. I mean, <laughs> there's, and, and it's, it's coming to the page and it's coming to the page. It's coming, um, you know, to my organs and my bones are feeling it, but, but I am looking for those delights. I'm looking for that magic. It sounds like if there's ever been a time when we should be meditating or we, you know, would uh, be uh, benefited by meditating, it's now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Do you meditate? um, Sure. And Felicia? Felicia? Did you, do you I like don't, meditate? I, I don't. I don't. Even though I should. I mean, I. It's one of. I mean, it's one of the. <laughs> it's one of those things of like. It's like how many therapists have I had throughout my life? 
so yeah. many because I keep hopping from therapist to therapist. I'm such infidelity with both therapy and my art. <laughs> but, but, that, but that's that's funny that you say that you say I should because if this conversation were happening 50 years ago, the question wouldn't be do you meditate, but do you pray to God and ask Him for help? And, uh, and, and that's that would be the same answer probably. You know, yeah, well, you know, I probably should pray to God, but I'm not going to. I'm not doing it right now. <laughs> that's true. Sure. <laughs> which, which I suppose reflects a spiritual shift. I mean, there are so, you know, it used to be when I was a kid, and I'm older than both of you, uh, maybe not put together, but I'm older than both of you. And when I was a kid, uh, uh, you know, growing up in North American culture and, you know, popular culture where there were three networks and, you know, top 40 stations, uh, it was, uh, you know, Jesus Christ and Christianity was the... Uh, uh, the model by which we thought about reality. But I don't think that you can say that's true uh, of us anymore, us as a, you know, not only as a, a nation, you know, and whatever all that diversity includes, but even as a, a global community. Yeah. Yeah, my grandfather meditated. He was a Zen Buddhist, but he was, you know, in, you know, kind of against everything that the rest of the family believed. And but he would yeah. talk about that with me when I was young, and there was no, you know, like, there was no open conversation about meditation, you know, I mean, with the family, but, yeah, and definitely the prayer. But I do think, and I don't, I mean, I, I don't meditate either. I think of meditation very differently than someone like my grandfather, who was very strict, um, you know, rules for meditation. But But I do recognize the moments where you can be quiet with yourself and allow for that to happen yeah. and mm -hmm. not have to prescribe it or make it seem as if it is meditation for, for, for sure. Right. Right. You don't have to go to church to be saved and to talk to God. You yeah. can do it on a walk. And you know what I firmly really do believe in though, is this, this idea of conjuring of the self, um, that maybe meditation is part of that, but being a pretty, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty deep atheist, except I really do believe that the universe has this energy that we all share. And when, when we speak of ourselves and our desires and our hopes and what we want to become in our humanity, when we speak that out loud, both in our minds, you know, the echo of the mind, but then also through, through the mouth, both to oneself and to family and to friends uh, and to loved ones, you know, we are making ourselves. Mm -hmm. we, are, we are speaking of our being in a world that, you know, for DIPOC individuals that, you know, hates us, right. doesn't want us to succeed or be here. And, and that feels really important. And, and I guess for me that, that feels like a form of meditation, Right. Um, both inside me and outside me. Do you think that this pandemic for many of us has uh, caused us to be more active in how we filter reality, how we accept what is true and what that connection is, that energy? Does that question you make know, sense? I don't, I don't know if it, I think it has deepened it in a way that feels um, interesting, but sometimes kind of unhealthy mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of, of the thought processes oh, yeah. of longing for yeah. connection, like a physicality right. and a conversation and an energy and being denied it based on circumstance. And so I think that, that right now, I mean, especially in my writing, I, I'm dancing between that which is necessary and insistent on, on coming out through the art, but then also these internal issues that I am facing as a human being um, right. inside myself and then in my community. That, that's a that's beautiful, dancing between different things, between one thing and another. I like that word, dancing. Uh, because it, it it makes it lovely and playful, you know, which I, I suppose is important that we stay positive. I, I was thinking about um, your your comment earlier where you said that um, 
this pandemic has given you an opportunity to search for the limitlessness, which I think is a beautiful idea. And the way I understand it is that limitlessness, the deeper we go into ourselves, the more we shed those structures like language and, and, and go, you know, as deep as we can, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's meditation. Right, right. And I think it's also, it should be at least said that fear, and I don't want to misconstrue it with what we, what we think of as like, you know, mass fear and all of that. But I think fear is one of the things that just blocks everything, introspection, questioning, you know, truth, all of those things. And there's so much fear. It's palpable. There's so much, yeah, there's so much of that happening that I find myself when I am, you know, when I am trying to get, get, go there with my writing or my thinking that, um, sometimes that's the biggest block that's coming up is that, is that fear, is that fear. And it's, and I see it around me, you know, just with everybody, Mm -hmm. um, no matter what they believe or they think or what they're, you know, what they're reading about, there is just this fear that's on the the top of them, you know, and, and you can almost see it. It's so visceral. So absolutely. It's, it's hard to cut through that, you Um, know, you know, um, but it's important too. You know, and I'm so glad that you bring that up because, you know, when we were thinking about this conversation before, you know, Daniel had asked us a little bit about truth. And I, I just kept thinking about how truth really is this this warped thing, that it is it is a perception that's distilled through cognition, through emotion, what you bring up fear, right? Through emotion, through through memory, through nostalgia and, and this these compounding experiences. Um, and, you know, in truth in this country right now of the intersections of power and truth are, I mean, sometimes it feels like we're on another planet, right? Mm-hmm. We're like black and brown bodies in this country. We, we have this illogical violence that oh. is the truth that's governed by white supremacy. <laughs> and, and we are literally, literally on another planet because there are some people whose truths believe that they're on a flat planet and you would not be able to convince them of any other reality. Yes. Yes. And, and that goes back to what Marisol was talking about of, of this fear of, of how fear works the ideas of truth. And then we see it resonate out from the body of individuals into like this collective thought and process and structure and rules that are damaging to, to communities and to certain individuals. I mean, it's, it's at the root of things, I think. Um, you, you, you know, the other day, uh, last week, I interviewed a neuroscientist who wrote this book on called On Being Certain. And it's essentially uh, saying that there is a, you know, a, a place in the brain uh, where certainty is 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 located and fixed uh but it has absolutely nothing to do with truth however if you believe something uh, uh there's there's absolutely nothing you can do about it you are going to believe that deeply and i'm really interested in this idea because what it does what it, what it says to me is that we well first of all we all have a story of self and some of us have a story of the universe but the stories are just cartoon versions of the universe like you know we might believe in science but we understand physics only on a very cartoon metaphorical level and so it's just another narrative uh but 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 that uh each of us uh have two stories the and the story about self needs to be reinforced over and over and over again for the obvious evolutionary advantages of survival and procreation. But since that's not really what we need now is survival and procreation, a lot of those stories are going into an identity that we want people to have of us, you know, maybe a social media identity or, 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 or whatever. But yeah. we, we have these stories and we reinforce them all the time. And so that certainty in our brain is created perhaps to reinforce that that idea of who we are. And so what do we do about it? How can we 
how, how can we tell somebody who thinks the, flirt, the earth is flat that the earth is not flat when they can find just as much evidence as we can to the contrary? And I don't know if it's connected to this, but I, but Lucia brought up the idea of conjuring the self. And I'd love mm -hmm. to hear a little bit more about that. What It's a really interesting idea. I don't, and, you know, maybe in my mind when Danielle was talking was, he was saying, it made me think about the pathways, you know, in your mind, you know, and, you know, I don't have a great way of talking about this because I don't know about it. But the pathways that we create, right, when we continually reinforce a belief, right, a belief that, Danielle said, right, is already there. It's being sculpted and it's continued. Um, but how does maybe the idea of conjuring yourself, does that connect to that? Does that relate to that? It's interesting. Well, and not only, I guess not only these things of like how, how truth is seen, our confidence in truth that we perceive, um, the conjuring of self, but also then how does imagination come into play? Um, I'm really interested in how imagination, like how can we imagine a world in which black and brown and queer and trans lives are valued and are, are looked at as, um, as voices that are, are necessary and, and honoring of the world as opposed to what we're in right now. Like, and I am really, really interested in the role that imagination plays in all this too. And, and wonder if we're open to our imaginations and wonder, does that mean that we are more flexible to have our um, belief systems malleable in a way? Hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think about this a lot of, I conjure myself into existence, but there is a comfort in the more that I know, the less I know. And there becomes this very kind of ferocious wanting to learn more, which in wanting to learn more, I feel like I do become slightly more open because I'm willing to admit what I don't know, which is pretty much everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting. I think and what, I love the word conjuring. Sorry. I just, I love that word, you know. I mean, that's why I was drawn to it when you, when you talked about it earlier. But go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say it. Yeah, imagination is more important than knowledge. And even if you look at mm. any, any system that, that attempts to describe 100% of reality, whether it's metaphysics, uh, religion, uh, physics, neuroscience, any system that attempts to describe 100% reality is basically giving you a model, a story. And, uh, you know, that story is, you know, is most, most certainly has its uh, 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 roots in imagination. You imagine the cosmos. You imagine the 86 yeah. billion neurons in your brain and the pathways that they're creating. You imagine God. You imagine heaven. I sometimes wonder as a species how we can be so imaginative, how we can think of, you know, um, we could think of flying cars long before the flying car will ever come into existence. And yet we can't imagine a world where black and brown are equal to that of white. Like, I, I have, I, I just, I don't understand where the superiority of white supremacy has, has diluted us in our capabilities for so long, how, how, how the racial violence and the racial inequity can, continues, and yet iPhones and smartphones and, and all of these technologies are growing at exponential rates, right? Like, that imaginative side we can all grasp onto but why are we so behind in our humanity and <laughs> and in the, radi in the radicalization right. of the way we treat each other I, I i don't know why i keep coming back to this i think it's because it's haunting me nonstop. Right. like <laughs> no that's that's yeah, great I, you know you need to be poet laureate of cincinnati Oh, goodness. <laughs> I, just, I just got here, so that feels silly. Well, then, you know, at the rate you're going, you'll be a poet laureate of the United States uh, uh, pretty soon. 
So, but speaking of poet laureates, I what did know. you guys think? I don't think? know. Amanda Gorman. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda Gorman's got, got that going. Yeah, I was about to ask you, what do you think about Amanda Gorman, uh, who uh, did the, the, uh, the poem for the inaugural address? I, I thought that was, that was a, oh, oh, go ahead, Marisa. Oh, no, I was just going to say that I thought, I thought it was powerful and much needed, and it made a lot of people very proud, and it made a lot of poets very proud to, you know, to see someone, you know, useful and, and, and really, um, you know, speaking uh, emotionally from the heart, and, you know, I... I I enjoyed it. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was pretty swept away in in that part of it, and not as swept away in other parts of the inauguration, but definitely in that part. And uh, so I thought it was a really a, just a positive, as well as, you know, she did make people think about, you know, what was going on and all of that. So I thought I thought it was good. And my mom and all the other people were, you know, oh, she was so good and all this stuff. So, yeah, I thought it was good. You know, I, she and her art were stunning. And it was, I was so proud of poetry at that moment. Um, As well as, I didn't see her as like a former youth poet laureate speaking to our nation. She was, she's a poet speaking to our nation. And, and I just kept feeling like it was so wonderful to feel what the future of poetry and the future of art will be like. Um, it's comforting for me to know that um, so ma- I think so many of the minds and the artists who are, who are coming up now, I think they'll change things. I think they will. I think they'll do the work that, um, you know, we're all working toward now, but are maybe going to demand it in a way that our generation couldn't. And there's something really ex- exciting about that. Wow. I, I love what you said. I am so proud of poetry. That's that's a beautiful, beautiful statement. And it makes me... Uh, you know, it leads me to a question that I've been meaning to ask both of you. Um, and uh, whoever wants to answer first, you know, please. Um, but uh, does poetry matter in these times? Not only, you know, everything that we've been talking of, is poetry making a difference? Does it matter? I feel that I, I turn to my art, I turn to poetry as a place to wonder, to investigate, to expose, to to think deeply in a larger conversation about the world around me and, you know, in a world that I don't understand. I I, I think I've maybe said that three times now. There's so much I don't understand. And I bring that and I try to bring it to as an authentic, an authenticness to my, my own writing is trying to, trying to sift through the horrid things that we do to each other as humans um, the horrid things we do to our world, but yet also the beauty that we share with each other, um, the collective and, and the mm. the empowerment we give each other. It, it's just like at any given point, um, something wonderful is happening or something horrible is happening. And I, I think it goes back to, for me, um, beauty and horror are not opposites. Sometimes they're one and the same. Because we are the we are the the root of this horridness. I mean, our humanity um, is and our consciousness is is the number one precious cargo. I, I once wrote a an essay about this called Precious Cargo, where our thinking is the strongest thing that we have, and yet it does horrible things. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and for me, for me, this is what art does. Yeah. It helps to sift through the unexplainable, the the, the illogical. We yeah. bring that into art and, and try to make sense of it. Well, well, that's a beautiful answer, and and what you're what you're saying to me, uh, you know, to my soul on the level of my soul, uh, is uh, is that uh, uh, you know that poetry is an essential part of of, of the culture of 
yeah, uh, and and it's beautiful. I yeah, I, I want to believe that, and I do believe that. Um, thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It's a beautiful. I mean, I completely agree. You just said it so well. I'm. It poetry is extremely important. I'm, you know, teaching a poetry class, but my poetry class is at the community mm-hmm. college level, and so these two students that are coming to poetry in the way that we think about poetry um, for the very first time. And this week, in fact, yay! Uh, <laughs> this week, in fact. Uh, a student of mine who's been coming to lots of office hours virtually, and she's just this, you know, bright personality. And um, But she asked if she could read me a poem that she was writing, you know, that wasn't for the class specifically. And she read it and recited it, and then I asked her, you know, have you ever read this out loud before? And she said, no, I have, I've never really read any of my poems. I write them, but I never really read them to anyone. Once in a while to my boyfriend, of course, and then I was like, that for me, it just, it made my day. I was just like, oh, there's this moment of bonding. There's this moment of intimacy, and we know it because we're poets and writers. Yeah. But they don't all the time, and they don't. This for them is a moment where they're like, you know, I got to bear my soul, and mm. somebody was listening. And for me, that a little bit starts to answer that question is, is it important during these times? It's absolutely important. It's as important as everything else, you know, in its perspective, you know, taking perspective. But I think that's a big part of it is, and, and also to say, Danielle has been this like amazing person in my life where, you know, I'm not always very confident in, in the stuff that I do. And, but he's one of these people that champions and is a big champion for poets and writers. Yeah. And so, and for me, that's a part of that community. It's a part of, it's maybe mm-hmm. the most important, one of the most important things is because when you get down to it, you're all by yourself when you're writing. But, but if you can, if you can engage and bond with somebody else and, and, and help to push them up a little bit by just in any way, you know, it makes, all the difference in so many lives, you know, the ripple effect, of course. And those, oh my pathways, gosh, yeah. those pathways are what are being rebuilt and built over the pathways of belief that we have constantly, no matter who you are, but especially for brown folks and black folks that are constantly being having to be um, rebuilt over because we just constantly think less of ourselves mm-hmm. because of the world yep. that you know, that we're brought up with. My voice gets all shaky when I get excited about it. <laughs> but I think that that's a part of it is is that we're rebuilding those pathways by being those champions. Mm. And I say that yeah. about Daniel yeah. in the way, in the most, because I think um, he's, in, you know, an amazing champion for people. And, you know, I wouldn't be where I would, where I am, you know, without oh, the help <laughs> oh, it's I, true. I, I I'm love sorry it. if it sounds, you know, weird, but but it is true to me, and it's. And I'm a little champion of, you know, my students and and others, you know, in this city and stuff like that. But but I do that because other people have really have really helped me. Yeah, I want to absolutely. I, 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 thank you for saying that. that kind of so, uh, I, I'm. Um, I, I want to ask both of you to read a poem that you wrote during the pandemic. Uh, but before we get to that, I I, uh, I wanted to say one more thing, and I'm not quite sure why I wanted to include this in the conversation, but I just sensed that it would be uh, okay to do so. And I've been thinking a lot about how we outsource a lot of our brain to technology. Uh, For example, our memory. We don't have to remember things anymore. We have our device. And if we forget who it was that played, you know, uh, Fonzie in Happy Days, which you guys probably don't remember because you're too young, uh, we just, you know, ask Siri and she gives us the answer right away. So we don't have to use a lot of our semantic memory anymore. And there's even some episodic memories that are in our phones and that's the only way we have access to them. We see something, oh yeah, I remember that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're outsourcing a lot. And what concerns me is the poets, I think you're both right, and and there were both brilliant answers on how poetry matters. Uh, The poet, in a sense, is the 
conserves the language and conserves our ability to create metaphor and story. And the poet does it from the language within, from, you know, probably as close to the limitlessness as you can get. Uh, and the problem with outsourcing uh, uh, parts of our brains to technology is when we are writing, if we write on a device in our notes app, for example, or even in our programs uh, that are in our, our, our devices, the suggestive text, the predictive text, sometimes is an easier option than saying what we were originally going to say. And I know it happens to everybody. It says, you know, are you you know, uh, you were going to say, all right, but okay comes up. And so you just hit okay, because it's a lot easier. And by you, I don't mean you guys specifically, I mean people. And I think that's shaping the language that we use, and it's restricting it. And how do you think that, oh my. That, that these kind of devices and this kind of technology is going to affect the language of poetry? Um. I just, I just want to throw, I, I don't want to fully answer the question yet, but I, I want to say um, I, it's where you're just channeling. Somehow you have a crystal ball and the, the poem I'm going to read, it, it actually asks about um, how we package and, uh, our thinking and sound bites right now. Wow. Um, I don't know how you just did that. <laughs> you just abracadabra, abracadabra that out of, no, out of nowhere, but Wow, I mean, when when I read it, you'll uh, maybe you'll see that connection. But um, well, read it, read it, and then, and then we could talk about it, or if you want, whatever way you want to do first. Well, no, because I want to I want to hear what Marisol has to, as thinks about right. this as well about the question you just asked. Okay. It's I would just say that it's about being. It doesn't always feel like it's real when it's on online when it's on the laptop you know sometimes I I feel like I, I really want to print out my my poems so I can see them in a tangible way and um so a lot of it feels like you know just like the photograph the things that are you know just all this stuff that's like just kind of floating around out there um uh, is just it's it's easily lost and easily forgotten um and so it, that mm -hmm. part of it worries me um, but it's also a really good way of, of, you know, of trying to, you know, get away from all of the clutter that's, you know, right. paper. Clutter and like right, right. But you and, know, I, yeah, I, I think, so that, that's what I think. Yeah, I think we do hide in the ease, though, that ease you're talking about. I think we hide it and we come, we become slightly unauthentic when we do that. Um, and it actually takes more effort to push against the ease in which technology gives us. At least I find myself doing that. Like, I don't know how many times I back face when I'm texting and my partner is just like, why don't you shut off the, the <laughs> auto suggestion? And I'm like, no, because there's something gratifying about telling my phone to just F off. I know what I want to say. And you're oh, not going to force great. me to say I love it. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's just like, I'm these tiny rebellions apparently are, are coming at me in all these ways, but I don't want to hide what I'm thinking or who I want to be. And I'm, I'm well aware of this ease of how I can just send a meme instead of typing out happy birthday. Right. And, and honestly, I must have like these really sausage fingers because I always mistype birthday and <laughs> I backspace, I backspace to correct it instead of, you know, searching for, for it to autocorrect. Um, wow, that's interesting. I don't know what the hell. That, I don't know what the hell that it. That's is, resistance, <laughs> Felicia. That says resistance, and that's what poetry is all about in some sense. Is that resistance, right? Yeah. There, there's there's some tension there. That's beautiful. It's <laughs> a, a very that's a very kind way of saying I'm neurotic. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing is that you know, as writers, uh, we probably spent a majority of our writing time actually entering into other texts and other experiences. We read yeah. a lot. You know, we need to, uh, and and and. So today, hoy en día, you can't walk into the bookstore like you used to be able to. And even if you do, you're going to be filled with anxiety, wanting to get what you want and get the hell out of there. But it's not like in the yep. old days, or you can't go into a library and look up the library card, and then go into the stacks and pick 
books out and, you know, smell them as you open them. You just can't do that anymore. You do it on online. So you buy a book on Amazon or whatever website you use. And then the next time you go on, there's a suggestion and you ignore it. But then the next time you go on after a while, it starts to get to know you so well that you follow the suggestions. And I wonder how yeah. much that is shaping our aesthetic because it's based on an economy. It's not based on uh, how we used to go into our, uh, our, our own paths and labyrinths. Yeah. Yeah. I miss libraries so much. The Holy universe. you were talking about that. I'm like, Oh yeah. Wow. I miss libraries. Oh, it was so cool to just go up into those stacks. The first time I, wa I was a student at the university, I would just walk into the stacks and just walk around and let the books blur by, let the titles, if they, if, you know, capture my attention, if they did, you know, I'd pull them off the shelf. Oh, and yeah. fingers on spines, you know, kind of yeah. like running your fingers on spine. I mean, I can't go anywhere right now because I, I like, I'm a tactile individual and I'm like, I touch everything. I'm, I'm like a, a germaphobe's worst nightmare. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but the algorithms are getting to know us intimately. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, yeah, this, and there's, there's this, no, there's oh. no hiding and looking for the little, the little cubby hole when you're on the internet. There's just no, it's all out there. Somebody's, something's watching, you know, something smarter with its own whateverness, consciousness is watching in a light, you know, in a library in the back little, the cubby hole library, nobody's watching and you can just, yeah. you know, sit in and, and get lost in it. And you're lost on the internet, but you're not, there, you're there, not. Oh. There's the, uh, the historian, uh, Yuval Noah uh, Harari, uh, who wrote uh, Homo Sapiens. And one of the things that he mm. says about algorithms and how they're, you know, creating choices for us and getting to know us better is that when we start to monitor our bodies, our biochemistry with our devices, like some people are already starting to do, that that will be included in the algorithms. And in the future, uh, they will not only predict what kind of reading that you might like, but they could also offer you choices that take that could take a book, for example, and know which part you wouldn't like and take that out and create a book entirely for you. <laughs> You know, that, and music. that makes me think that makes me think about how can I continue to radicalize myself <laughs> where I am I am able to um, not only go against my own expectations but the expectations of what uh, Big Brother might be um, trying to project upon me. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it's hard. It's hard to fight. You know. If if uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. nobody, nobody lives outside of the culture and, uh, right. and, you know, and you know, I had to, I had to, uh, I had to quit social media, uh, in order for me, for yeah. me to regain my focus. And one of the other things that I'm learning to mm -hmm. do is to not pick up my phone and go on to Apple news or to Google news or, or, you know, I try to keep only one news source in there because that can keep me clicking and keep, keep me in you know, and, and getting may angry and getting depressed and getting a shot of dopamine yeah. occasionally over and over again to where I'd be having this moment where I could be reflecting or just being, and I would right. pull it out and try to, you know, <laughs> find a new story. It's very addictive. Yeah, it sure is. It's beyond addictive. It's, it's just, it's so ingrained and um, it's trying, I'm trying very hard to be, to limit everything social media, you know, and that's hard with being pro-laureate because I like to try and, you know, post stuff so people can know what's going on, um, but then once you're on there, it has a life of its own, you know, you kind of get sucked back in, um, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. trying really hard to also stay stay away from that because, you know, cause, yeah, because of what you just said. Um, but, and find, you know, my own little library, you know, my books <laughs> yeah. and the little whoosh that, you know, you get when you do get something from online, you know, and it comes UPS, you know, it's, it's, you know, nice to sit down and be like, oh, I got, to, you know, I got my book and 
Oh now my God, that. we are we are the worst example of North American consumerism than any family probably ever. The, the UPS guy, and the uh, the mail guy, and the you know the uh, what is the other one? Uh, federal FedEx guy. You know they they mm. they know each other because they meet in front of our house. <laughs> I think they go out to happy hour together now. <laughs> Yeah. Can, yeah. can, can we, definitely. can we, uh, uh, let's, 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 uh, read a poem. Who wants to go first? Maybe, uh, well, I'll I'm going to let you guys decide. I'll okay. Go. Marisol Baca, uh, tell us about the poem. I, okay. Um, so, uh, this poem is something I wrote during, obviously during the pandemic, but it's, um, also a poem about the fires and about, you know, I was just feeling, like I said before, um, I was feeling very, like I didn't have anything to say or a voice and um, because I was so worried and so stressed out about it. So, and then, and then I sat down and I wrote, um, and this piece came from it and it's called burnout. I've been looking, searching for the match inside this combustible star chicken. This is the long valley of smoke in an electric arc, except nobody can move. Nobody recognizes movement. There is no spark, or there are many sparks. I watched this body under smoke, so thick, the sun is pink brimstone ash flake, asthma choke, and only silence after prayer, the pleading. Gray ash, I don't want to believe the poor, the women, brown and black folk, splutter. This is a place with a silenced mouth. A frozen inferno. Is that what I am seeing and hearing and knowing? Chaos, fire, tornado. I am at the center, a dark and curling thing. That was Marisol Baca. Thank oh. you for sharing that lovely poem. Felicia, Thank can you, you read yours? Yeah, absolutely. Of Marisol, that there is no spark or there are many sparks. This, you know, that just this idea of the singular and collective in tandem at all times. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this poem, uh, oddly enough, from what Daniel was talking about before, is called Used to Be. And I actually wrote it in November of 2020 uh, based on a headline that I had been reading. Apparently, I'm talking a lot to um, news articles. The dead minks in Denmark make me think about language. The way we hide and package in sound bites. 15 million minks killed over COVID-19 infections. USA Today uses the words slaughter, then cull, while the article dances with images of furry zombies rising from graves, explained easily by rushed burials and shallow plots. The pandemic rushes and slows time and minds in unfathomable, superpower-esque ways these days. Quote, these days, unquote. Another consideration of language. Quote, unprecedented time, unquote. On social, I saw a joke posted, could really use some precedented times. I wanted to laugh. The bridge between want and fruition collapsed for me in June 2020. I'm still hunting for a contractor, magician, with the tools to repair a damage I don't fully understand. We used to be, quote, all right, unquote. We used to be, quote, okay, unquote. We used to hug and hold and greet friends with double kisses on cheeks shake hands, pull babies not ours into arms the shape of cradles, eat pizzoli with spittle flying from our tongues and boisterous laughter amid dim lights of a packed restaurant, dance with our heat and sweat pressed to a stranger, lover, one in the same for the night, fuck in back alleys on planes on swaying decks near boathouses, clasp hands in lines to create bodies as roadblocks, bury our dead and weep into shoulders of loved ones with only our mourning and not thoughts of saliva transmission, 
and we knew what the face of our deceased looked like before burial, before cremation, and we celebrated the life taken from us too soon, too soon. We used to be all right. We used to be okay. We used to be. That was Felicia Zamora. And, uh, yeah, precedented times. I miss him, too. <laughs> Felicia and uh, Marisol, uh, we could do an entire show just on the idea of thinking. Uh, I, I would love to, to, to go deeply into that subject with you, too, sometime. We're just talking about the different kinds of thoughts and the origins of thoughts and how thoughts can both, you know, help you create a beautiful, beautiful reality and destroy your stable reality but uh but i'm afraid we're running out of time i'd like to thank felicia samora and marisol baca two fantastic poets writing during the pandemic and keeping hope in poetry alive i'm daniel chacon Thank you for joining us, and don't forget, we need you to buy books. Go online right now, walk into a bookstore, order books by Felicia Somada and Marisol Baca. And see you next time on Words on a Wire. Mm -hmm.